All right, well, hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead. We're going to be jumping around a little bit today, uh, but I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 towards the end of the New Testament. We're, we're starting on a four-week series today called The Ordinary Means of Grace. Liz Klingler right there crushed it again with the graphic, you know? I just preach so much of a better sermon when I have this great graphic behind me, I got to tell you. Um, Man, you guys are already so quiet this morning, and I'm not talking about you guys watching on the live stream. I'm talking about all the live folk here. So, I mean, I'd love to hear some shout outs this morning if we can. Um, hey, also, before I get started, we, 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 we dropped this uh, year-long Bible reading plan card on your, uh, on your chair. This is just a suggestion. So I'm gonna, always going to encourage you as your pastor to get into a, some kind of daily Bible reading. This is just a way to help you do that. It's, it's, not the, it's not the only plan. It's not the ordained plan, the Bible reading plan by God. There's plenty of other plans out there um, that do things a little bit differently. Um, our encouragement um, is to say, get into God's word. Here's a very structured way to do that. We, we introduced this to you last year. Here's another thing. Melissa and I followed this uh, during the year. It was really helpful. We kept losing this. And, um, you know, so, wait, I don't know what my reading is today. Where'd you put that thing? I don't know. You know, we're, so we're getting all these massive arguments and fights before we start our daily reading. So just make sure you have a couple of them and you keep it in a safe place. And um, I, think you'll, I think you'll do good uh, with that. Well, I like a new year um, because I like being able to hit reset, right? Um, and try to reprioritize some things that need attention. And all of us are doing that right now, right? Even if we're not doing that, that's a form of, of doing it, right? It's January 3rd, it's 2021. We entered into the new year. Some of us believe some things need to change about our lives, right? Some of us just, we need to eat better. We need to exercise more or maybe for the first time, right? We need to be more organized. Maybe we need to just learn how to save some money. We need to learn how to spend our money more wisely. Maybe some of those are some of the concerns that you've discussed or thought about this year. Maybe you just need to be less lazy. You need to be a little more disciplined, you think, in your life. And these are all the kinds of concerns without a doubt. It's not, that's, that was like the least far-reaching thing I've ever done in my life, listing off those things right now. But those are all concerns um, that we have as we come entering the new year. By the way, in the middle of not just a normal new year, but a year that's come on the heels of, of a pandemic that we're, we're still in. But it's also good for us to know that the Bible is not opposed, by the way, to any of those concerns and desires that I just mentioned. Here's what 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, this is what Paul speaks to Timothy, he said, picking up in verse 4, 4, everything created by God is good, Paul says, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, talking to Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what Paul is teaching his protege here, this dude named Timothy, is that all good things come from the goodness of God for our good. Here's a better way to say it. Not a better way, sorry. I just said there's a better way to say it than Paul just said it to Timothy. That's emphatically false. Here's a different way to say it, right? Man, starting off the new year, great, Ronnie's a preacher. You got a big future ahead of you. Um, there's nobody in the universe that wants what's best for you more than God. And that's the reality of God and his goodness and his desires and his passion, by the way. God is passionate for those things for you. But Paul is also saying that those good things are only made good when they become holy things falling under a life pursuit of holiness. And when we say holiness, really what we're saying is the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus by getting closer to Jesus. That's what we're saying when we talk about holiness. But here's what's so interesting for us, and I'll just speak for myself right now, is that the pursuit of holiness is rarely on our minds as we turn the corner into the new year. So the question then comes to us as the church, why should we pursue holiness? Why pursue it? Well, we pursue holiness because we serve a holy God whose heart for us is to become more like Jesus and experience a deeper love and affection for Jesus in the process of that pursuit. And everything else, all that is good, falls under that pursuit. It's, uh, man, it was sad that we weren't able to meet together uh, for Advent because the series was on the heart of Jesus. It was about the ways that Jesus is close to us. And I kind of was just sort of, you know, wanting to be close to you as I was preaching the closeness of Jesus to us. There was something about that. I wanted that physicality that I missed out on for some good reason. God didn't have that for us. But what we learned through the Advent season um, is that when God sent Jesus to earth, the name he chose for him was Emmanuel. Remember, we went through that, which is a name that means God with us. So the story of our redemption, which is our becoming right with God. I mean, Scott just talked a whole lot about this. Redemption is becoming right with God as sinful and rebellious creatures from birth. Is that God sent Jesus as the way to come near to us. So for God to enter the picture to get near to us, he sent Jesus to make that possible because there was separation. Because our sin, it creates separation. It creates a gap between us and God. And that gap, man, is, it's, it's like Grand Canyon style gap, right? It's that kind of a gap. So if sin creates separation, the question is, then how does that separation get healed? How do we heal the separation? The answer is by getting close to Jesus. That's the least brilliant thing I've ever said. How do we heal separation? It's by getting close to the person that we're separated from. So it's by getting close. And then there's a second part to that. And the second part to that is getting close, but then staying close. And so the benefits of our redemption, having been redeemed by Jesus, is that God has given us ways or means, like the, like the title lays out for us, to remain close 
to Jesus. It's kind of like any relationship that you have that you experience when two people are in conflict. You, you for sure had a relationship. And if you're married, I'm just going to say 100%, you've had a relationship where you've been in conflict with the other person. And really what's happening in that conflict is that separation is created. And the only way to heal that separation is to establish some kind of peace. But here's the thing, is that it can't just end there. Because if two people aren't intentional, they will simply drift from each other once again, which ultimately leads to relational dysfunction. And if they stay separated long enough, it's relational destruction, right? There is no relationship there. So follow me here. The story of mankind is that our sin created separation from God. So God responded. God loved us to the indescribable point that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for our sin so that the separation our sin created would be abolished. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. All of this came about, which is what we're going to really center on this morning. All of this came about because of this word that we call grace. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just back up a couple of pages. Look what it says in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul's saying, I didn't list everything. So if you think you're out of that list, don't worry. There's stuff on there I didn't list that you are securely in. And then in 11, it says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the effect of God's grace on us is that he sent God in the form of Jesus Christ to us because we were those people. We are those people. And the way in which this redemption for us is going to happen is by God's grace, right? Now, listen, we hear the word grace a lot and hopefully uh, a heck of a lot here because God's grace is the best news that I have for you as a preacher and you have as a person at the end of the day, right? But maybe you hear that word a lot in life, but you don't really know what it means. You just know it's a nice word, and you just know when it gets applied to you somehow, that's good. And if somebody ever says to you, oh man, thanks for having so much grace on me, you're like, okay, like I think that's a good thing, right? But, but what, what exactly does that mean? Because we hear, we hear the word grace played out in a lot of different ways. Like we might say that person is very, like you look at a dancer, right? Or an ice skater, you see that person is very graceful in the way that they move. And you go, okay, well, that, I get that, kind of, but I don't know how that applies to how I treat other people, right? Or how I'm treated. Or, or you might say that person acted very gracious toward me, and we would say, well, that, that person was kind towards me. Or we might say something like, thank you for showing me so much grace, um, 
because maybe I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time learning something from you and you're being patient with me. Or we, we show up late for an appointment and somebody says, hey, that's okay. And it could be said that they showed you grace. But this is what we're saying when we say those things. We're saying, thank you for being kind to me, even though I've done nothing to deserve your kindness. That's what it means when we're saying somebody is showing us grace or we are showing grace to somebody else. Um, a little while ago, we were laying down some flooring uh, in our house. And by we, I certainly don't mean I, right? But we had some friends who came in that kind of knew what they were doing and they laid down some flooring. It was an all day project. I went and filled up the, you know, I got him water and I really did a lot of work with him that day. And, and uh, you know, when it came to the end of the day, they packed up all their stuff and we had all these beautiful floors, you know, laid down and we were super excited. And um, I, uh, you know, I gave, him a, I gave him a card just to thank him. And I literally, I had like a million dollars in that card to pay him, I'm kidding, it wasn't, wasn't nearly enough money, but it was some money. And um, anyway, they left and then uh, we walked back in the kitchen and he had left the card on the table. And I was like, oh my gosh, he left the card. I'm so bummed about that. Get his address, let's send it. And then I immediately got a text from him and he said, your money is no good. We just wanted to bless you guys. And of course, when that happens, it's a very humbling experience because we didn't deserve we didn't deserve these friends to um, spend an entire day on something that wasn't really all that important, laying down some floors for us. But this is sort of how we define grace. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. That's what we need to remember when we think about grace, especially God's grace, is that it's unmerited favor from God through Christ for the forgiveness of sins for all who repent and believe. You're getting something that you don't deserve. That's grace. It's unmerited by design. It's not grace if it has to be earned, right? We think back to Noah. Remember the story of Noah? Noah is the guy who God came to and said, I'm going to destroy the world because of the sin and wickedness that pervades it. But he said, brother, I'm going to save you, your three sons and their wives. I'm going to save seven people. I'm going to have you build a boat because how I'm going to do it is I'm going to flood the world. So we remember the story of Noah. And one of the things that Genesis tells us about Noah is it says God had favor on Noah. And that's really another word for grace. God had unmerited favor on Noah, right? He found grace with God before God flooded the world, saving only Noah and only Noah's family. But by the way, here, and here's what we're getting into this morning is that grace didn't just end there. God's grace for Noah continued after the flood, because you know what this brother had? He had a vineyard. And you know what you typically have on vineyard is you have grapes. And let's just say that our boy Noah enjoyed those grapes quite a bit after he turned them into liquid form. And he had, man, Noah, wasn't, Noah was not this perfectly upstanding, you know, uh, righteous dude. You know, the Bible tells us that Noah had an incident where he was drunk and some things went down. And yet we know that in his life, the grace that God showed Noah didn't just end after he pulled him off the boat and said, dry land. He still showed Noah the grace that he had been given in spite of Noah being a sinful person just like we are. God's grace for Noah continued after the flood. And that tells us something about God's grace, which is that it's all encompassing, which means it's applied to both our salvation 
and our sanctification. Another way to say it is this. Grace saves you and it sustains you. It saves you, but it sustains you as well. It doesn't get lifted. I think, I think Scott just talked about it. It's not something that God applies when he saves you and then removes it and then you have to earn it back. It's all encompassing. Once, God, once God's grace comes over you for salvation, it remains there and sustains you for life. Such is the good news about God's grace because it operates in that way. If it operated any other way, it wouldn't be grace, right? You guys know the difference between a gift and a loan. Have you ever had somebody give you what you thought was a gift and then it turns out to be a strings attached loan? You thought somebody was maybe giving you some money or, or giving you something that you needed and then later on they're like, so whenever you can pay me that back, that would be fantastic. And you're like, wait, I thought it was a gift. You enjoy a gift, right? But a loan, although it's helpful in the moment because it's probably something you need, it needs to be what? It needs to be paid back. It needs to be returned. Grace is not a loan. Grace is a gift. It's a benefit that is applied by God to our lives for all of life. So here's how I want us to understand grace, because what we're doing is we're going to be getting into what's called the means of grace, and we're going to sort of unpack that next week. This is kind of a precursor to us unpacking that, and I want us to have just a greater and fuller understanding of what grace is. Here's how we should understand grace, is this, God didn't send Jesus to just, listen to me very closely, he did not send Jesus just to fix you. Does that make sense? What we do with broken things is what? We fix them. We fix broken things. So about two weeks before Christmas, our furnace just stopped kind of working, right? I mean, I'm from California. I don't even know what a furnace is, you guys. I mean, what is this thing? All I know is that we wake up in the morning and the little number on the, on the wall says like 51, now, some of you guys might like keeping your house cold, but that's not me, man. I'm not the abominable snowman. I don't like things that cold. So here it is. A couple of weeks before Christmas, we have, this, we have this gas fireplace and here's me and Melissa just huddled up next to each other with the blanket. You know, we got all the icicles coming off of our eyelids and our nose, just waiting for somebody to come and do what? Fix this thing called a furnace, which we turned out wasn't even broken. It was just some computer thing. Oh man, I'm just, I'm dying right now. Something on it, but we got it fixed. And by we, I mean a very nice man who came in that we paid $1 million to fix it. Right. But here's the thing, right? Here's my point is that that furnace will not be touched again until it breaks. Like I am not going down and going, oh man, I wonder how the computer on the furnace is doing today. Babe, let's go down with our flashlights and like just dig it out and check it out. Like I'm looking at Josh Wilkerson. He's like, yeah, I do that every day, man. I don't know why that's weird or you're making fun of that kind of action. But I'm, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at it until it breaks. And even then I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to call the guy in to look at it, right? Jesus came not to merely repair the problem of your sin. That's a really important thing that he did do, but it was not all that he came to do. He came, listen, to make us new again. He came to make us new creations. Let's turn 
Go back to 2 Corinthians. I want to read this verse to you. 2 Corinthians 5. You want to make a left? First Corinthians 5, start in verse 17. That's what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he explains it, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting us to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And then he's telling them, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God because for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might, what's that word there? Become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. And we look at that word become, and when you think of that, you think of the word process. It's be something that is becoming something. Jesus is making something new. You know the first thing we know about Jesus when we open the Bible to Genesis is that he's an artist, that he's a creator. We find out all the ways that he works out of his creator heart as we read through the Bible. Redemption is part of his creator heart. Grace, joy, love, peace, mercy, part of his creator heart. But the first thing we learn about Jesus is that he makes things new. He creates, he makes things. Not merely fixing something and then leaving it unattended like we do when we fix things. Because when you make something, and all of you make something, it's about the process, isn't it? You begin with a concept, and then you design it, then you build it, and then you maintain what you conceived, designed, and built. Man, you can apply that to anything. If you're a carpenter, if you're someone who likes to cook, if you're an artist, if you're a musician, it, it's all the same process, but it's a process. And so Jesus came, listen, to make all things new, which implies that you, brothers and sisters, are a work in progress. You are a work of art in process, which is why you don't have to despair when you look in the mirror and see all of your ongoing flaws. Because listen, if Jesus came only to fix you, if he only came to just fix you and your sin problem, that plan does not seem to be going so good. Why? Because we're still sinners because we are still being formed and shaped and painted by God. He came to make a new you. You know, an artist is not fixing a portrait, is he? An artist is painting a portrait. A musician is not fixing a song, she's composing a song. And this is what we know about the process that God applies by grace to our lives. So grace is how Jesus began his new work in you. Yes, we don't minimize that ever. In fact, we just talk about it constantly. But grace is also how, number two, he continues the work that he started. He crafts you. He is chiseling you. He is building you. He is forming you into something new, minute by minute. 
hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. If you ever watch a painter that takes a long time to paint something, one of the interesting things is that they will work for a day, they will come and show you the progress they've made. And unless you really understand painting, you look at it and you go, I don't see what you did. It looks just like it did yesterday. And he's like, oh no, but you should see some of the strokes and some of the colors that I made a little bit richer. And you go, I don't see it. And he goes, well, but I do. And I'm the artist and I'm the one holding the brush. And that is how God is working in our lives to continue to just enrich those brush strokes and those colors that he's painting with his brush. This is the beauty of grace. Because again, there are times in the process where things don't look that great. Man, things have not looked that great over the past year, given what we are experiencing, right? And yet we know that this is part of a greater design that we just can't see because we're not God, but we can trust because we serve God. So as Jesus saves us by his grace, by making us into new creations, that will someday be reunited with their creator because that separation has been healed. He also gives us what are called the means of grace. And this is what we're gonna be unpacking over the next three weeks. The means of grace, these things, these ordinary things that keep us close to Jesus. So what are the means of grace? Here's what they are. A guy named Nate Batzig gives a great definition. So I'm gonna use his for what the means of grace are. So what he says, God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. Things that we receive from God to become more like Jesus, right? You guys might know these things as being the spiritual disciplines, right? Things like reading God's word, which we talked about earlier, prayer, uh, taking communion together, baptism, things we call the sacraments. This is what God has given us, gifted us in the most ordinary way to be the mechanism or the means or the way that God's grace is applied to us in how we stay connected and close and near to Jesus. That's what he's done. Reading, praying, gathering together, taking communion, seeing new believers become baptized. That's what God has given to us. Out of all the things God could have given us to do to remain close to Christ, those are the things that he's given us. You know, like if you go, man, just go anywhere right now and you're going to be able to find any diet or workout routine you want. And you can all argue about which one is more effective and which one is better. Of course, the one more effective is not going to be the one that you tried last year and it didn't work out so good, but it's going to be the one that you're embarking on two days ago for sure, right? But really there, there's... All it is is just a debate on what's going to work better for you because there's a million of them. There's technically no right and wrong with any of them, right? And yet God has given us just a couple of specific things that he says, hey, for you to experience my unmerited favor, my ongoing grace, here's what I've given to you to experience this thing. The first thing he's given to us is his word. How do we know what God's will is? By reading his word. How do we know how to understand what the audible voice of God is? Read his word out loud. 
That's how we know what it is that God is speaking to us. He's given us this entire book of his word to tell us what he wants us to know. There are some things he doesn't tell us too. And that's where wisdom comes in. That's why we've been going through the book of James. That's where discernment comes in. That's where just making wise choices comes in. That's where surrounding yourself with community and getting good counsel comes in. Because at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't prescribe what kind of car you're supposed to buy or what house you're supposed to move into or the next state or city you're supposed to relocate to or the job you're supposed to take. God wants you to use wisdom for those things. But he's given us his word to know his will for us in all of the things and all of the ways that draw us closer and deeper to Jesus. He's also given us prayer. How do we experience closeness to God? Well, he's given us this moment. He's given us this practice called prayer where we have God's ear, where the creator of the universe is listening to us. And you know what? Now we can just keep it super real and real with him. That's why the Psalms are so helpful for us because we see people that are complaining, they're angry at God, they're crying out to him, they're shaking their fist, they're in agony, they don't understand what's going on. And what we see because of God's grace is a God that listens and understands and has compassion and says, I got you. I hear you, I got you. I'm teaching you something right now. And then he's given us the sacraments. We talk about taking communion together, the bread and the cup, spiritual strength and nourishment. There's some mystery to some of this. We understand that when we take communion together as a church, the Holy Spirit is working to spiritually strengthen and nourish us. Some of you guys might wonder, man, I just, I eat this horrible cracker that you're giving us now, Ronnie, and this juice, and I, I don't understand what it's doing. Well, there is a mystery to what it's doing because it's symbolic but we also understand that it's strengthening us spiritually in some ways that maybe aren't as felt and aren't as obvious, but we are trusting God is doing that work, which is why we obey as a church and we come close to God as he comes close to us through the bread and the cup. And so these are the means of graces and that's what we're gonna unpack over the next three weeks. And we wanna approach these graces with a level of repentance and belief in our, in our hearts. And we wanna pray that God would open up our hearts to greater repentance and greater belief, understanding that everything that God has given us, which I listed three things, is for our good and his glory. His passion for you is that you would grow closer to Jesus, regardless of what happens to your diet and your workout routine and going back into your old spending ways and all the stuff that's gonna unravel on February 9th, right? Again, those things are like this. God has something solid for us in terms of what is going to bring us some level of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Because he says, when we engage, when we receive the means of grace that he has for us, he promised that we're gonna experience blessing from him. The way that Scott described it this morning, which I thought was so good. We're gonna experience God's favor. We're gonna experience things that we otherwise would not experience if we didn't allow ourselves to practice these means of grace that he has given us. Because at the end of the day, what we're called to do as believers is to pursue holiness. 
Remember that Will Smith movie, The Pursuit of Happiness? And he spelled it H-A-P-P-Y-ness. Thank you for laughing, Tammy. This pursuit of happiness is actually the pursuit of holiness for us as believers. Look what this guy named Scott Hubbard, he's an editor for, uh, for Desiring God, the website Desiring God. He says that we need to pursue these means of grace with both diligence and desperation. This is what he says. He says, holiness cannot be found apart from the Spirit's means of grace. Therefore, we must be diligent in the use of them. And then he says this, listen, holiness cannot be found in the means of grace themselves. Therefore, we must be desperate for the Spirit to work through them. So it's not a magic formula. As we're doing these things and being faithful in our practice of them, we're praying that the Spirit works through them in our hearts. Diligence and desperation, he says, these are the postures that honor the Spirit's means of grace. And by his design, they are our only hope for true holiness. And he goes on to say this, listen to this. No Christian drifts into holiness, he says. The flesh is too weak, the devil too deceitful, and the world too alluring. That's why he says diligence and desperation. Diligence is some of that discipline that we need to have. But we need to be careful that in our discipline, we don't become pharisaical. We don't become like a Pharisee. We don't become legalistic, right? We don't start judging other people because they don't have the level of discipline that we seem to be able to practice. That level of discipline, since it's empowered not by you, but by the Holy Spirit, it actually humbles us, right? The other thing he says is desperation. We need to pursue Christ like a thirsty, hungry person, seeing our need for him, motivated by our love for him because of his love for us. And then we need to guard against, I'm adding this one, we need to guard against distraction, right? Be careful of all those other things that demand your attention and your allegiance that take you away from the diligence and the desperation that God has given us as we engage in these ordinary means of grace. So God has given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us the sacraments, communion, baptism to bring us what it is that we are desperately longing for, which is to experience the love and the joy and the peace and the happiness and fulfillment, which comes by becoming more like Jesus through closeness and intimacy with Jesus. Here's a couple of practical examples as we end our time. I mean, are you feeling beat up? You feeling beat up coming into the new year? If you are, um, that would be the most understandable thing in the world, giving the 2020 that we're coming out of. But if you're feeling beat up, we read God's word to remember what compassion and love Jesus has for you, his beat up people. Do you see what God's word does for us in those moments? It reminds us of the heart that God has for us, the plans that God has for us. Are you experiencing isolation and loneliness? Some of us that have more friends than anybody else in the world experience the greatest isolation and the greatest sense of loneliness. God has given us prayer for those things, right? We pray to God because scripture tells us he hears the prayers of the righteous. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as we pray, he reminds us that Jesus is true and he's truthful, that his word is reliable. And we're encouraged in those moments when we're faithful to come before him. 
Do you need strength and reassurance that God will never leave you or forsake you? I do. Man, I need that all the time. When we take communion together on the second and fourth Sunday of the month, it provides us with spiritual nourishment that we need in our spirit to endure and to persevere. These are the benefits of redemption. This is the grace that saves and the grace that continues to sustain. I remember when I started dating Melissa, I, we, we started going out, we lived in the same town and then I promptly moved an hour away, not because I didn't wanna be close to her, it's just what was going on at the time. I'm all like, I'm all just, you know, d- defending myself. Um, but I remember we started dating. I moved an hour away. And um, man, w- we had to do some things to make sure that we stayed close, right? We had these things called cars and we had to get in them. And we had to drive so that we could be in the same place as the other person. We had phones so that we could call each other, we could hear the other person's voice, we could be reminded that this person likes me and I'm hoping they, they, they'll love me eventually. I already got my life planned out with this woman and I'm hoping she's on board, but if I don't ever see her and if I don't ever talk to her and if I don't make the effort to ever spend any time with her, how am I going to be reassured that any of it is true even when it's true? So I availed myself of the means that God had given us for us to be close, to stay connected. And that's what God has done with these means of grace. And here's how I'm going to end. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. And we all, with unveiled face, this is, a, this is hearkening back to Moses when, when he would spend time with God and he would go and face the people and his face was glowing to the point where the people couldn't look at him. It was too bright. So he had to put a veil over his face. So this is what Paul is alluding to. He says, and we all talking to the church with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is happening to you. Like I'm looking at all of you right now with all of your all's unveiled faces. And let me be honest, sometimes, man, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing that glory from one degree to another. When I look in the mirror, most days I'm not seeing that, that next degree of glory. But what we can't see with our limited view, God sees and God is at work because of his ongoing sustaining grace in our lives. Why? Because God's passion for us is to glorify Jesus by us being transformed into greater likeness of Jesus. And he's giving us the means of grace to experience this grace that he has for us. So the question is, will we pursue this holy happiness? We begin this week to anticipate what it is, God's grace, what effect it will have on our lives as we engage and embark on these things that we are gonna learn more deeply about, trusting that God is going to use these things to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Is there anything more worthwhile for us to pursue? There isn't. 
And that includes all the other things that we have to pursue because God knows we have to pursue other things. But when those things come under the light of the ultimate pursuit of holiness, which is the pursuit of happiness for us, and we engage in those things with the ordinary means that he's given to us, we are going to experience a very peculiar and very purposeful and very known level of transformation in our lives. You don't need self-help because you can't help yourself. You need the help that you have beckoning you from the very heart and hand of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us through Christ, these means of grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace that saves us, this dramatic moment, Lord, when our sins are taken from us, as we come to you, as we repent, as we say, God, save us. It's by your grace that we are saved. And then yet we see this grace that sustains us, Lord, that draws us closer to Jesus, that makes us more like him, that brings us the happiness that we long for and know we don't deserve, but become more grateful for as you continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, would you, would you change our hearts and our desires in such a way that these are things, Lord, that we pursue with diligence and desperation this year, knowing that when we miss days, your grace comes into that too. You're not standing over at us like an angry school teacher, shaking your finger because we missed an assignment. Sorry to all the school teachers about that. But Lord, we thank you that you're a loving creator God who is doing a work on us, who's chiseling away that is forming us and reforming us until someday we are face to face with Jesus. We thank you for just the hopeful, encouraging truth of this reality. And Lord, we pray that we would practice these things as a church so that we grow in this community as people whose time spent with you is felt in the most tangible of ways. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.